Welcome to the Hands in Motion podcast, brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. Here we will discuss all things upper extremity therapy, from assessment to treatment, the latest research, the patient experience, and other topics related to the field of upper extremity rehab. Learn more and subscribe today at ASHT.org. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Hands in Motion. I'm Kara Smith. And I'm Stephanie Strauss. Today, we are going to be discussing the use of patient-reported outcomes measures in hand therapy. Now, I know that the mention of patient-reported outcomes measures can bring out a wide spectrum of thoughts and emotions, but we hope that this discussion will get you thinking of ways to implement PROMS into your practice and how they can be meaningful to both you as a clinician and the patients that you serve. Welcome, Jenny Dorich. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks. So, Jenny, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? So, I am a hand therapist. I've been practicing for about 22 years. I started my practice in adult hand therapy in an adult-based clinic in Cincinnati. And then after five years, I switched to pediatric practice. And I've been at Cincinnati Children's Hospital since then. So, I have the pleasure of working with young people, anywhere from newborn to early adulthood with hand impairment at this point in my career. I have kind of gone through a long journey with my education through my process of professional development as well. And I'm currently a PhD candidate at the University of Kentucky, getting my PhD in rehab sciences, which has been a great experience. And the bulk of my research is really around outcomes measurement within the hand therapy population. I focused most specifically on pediatric hand therapy, but looked at outcomes more broadly as well. Great. So yeah, I had a little insight into that. So asked Jenny to join us today so that we could talk about outcome measures and how we use them in therapy and why, why they are meaningful to our practice. So Jenny, why don't you explain, I guess, kind of give us an introductory definition as to what these outcome measures are that we use in our practice? Well, I think that's an interesting question that you pose because I would say broadly, if you ask me what an outcomes measure is, I would say that that's any type of measurement that expresses a treatment outcome. So that could be something that we're all familiar with, like range of motion, grip strength, Sims-Weinstein measures. That's how I view outcomes broadly. Some of my work more specifically has looked at the utilization of patient-reported outcomes measures. And those are specifically measures that you are getting a measurement of the patient or, and sometimes in the case of someone who can't respond for themselves, the caregiver's report on how specific aspects of their health are, oftentimes quality of life measures, pain measures. So I think it can be a broad topic and more specifically can narrow it down to types of measures. So in your practice or in even adults when you started or even just now, how do you choose the patient-reported outcome measure that you're going to use for your population or the patient that's sitting in front of you? 
specifically the patient reported outcome measure? Yeah. So I'll say when I first started practicing in hand therapy, which was a while back, the clinic that I worked at, we utilized the dash. And quite honestly, it was just something that, you know, I was oriented and I was told this is what we do. And you measure this and you measure it at the start of your treatment and you measure it at the end. And that was that. And for the longest time, that's what I did. And then when I transitioned to pediatric hand therapy, we didn't use the DASH because it wasn't validated for children. And actually our division of rehab was implementing that everyone would use the Canadian Occupational Performance Measure. And I couldn't really wrap my head around it, that that would be something that would be something to use with a hand population when we had these other measures like range of motion and strength. Like I'm like, I already have measures that show that our kids are improving. And as time went by, I started to see that pretty much looked like if we didn't come up with adopting some type of patient reported outcome measure that worked for our patient population, that we would be told which ones to use. So we actually went through a pretty rigorous process of trialing different patient reported outcomes measures with the pediatric hand population and seeing which ones seemed to fit. I mean, we went through a a large gamut of different ones out there. And we landed on utilizing the pediatric outcomes data collection instrument. It was a tool that was being used elsewhere within our institution. And so we decided to adopt using a couple of its scales, the pain scale and upper extremity function scale, because those were quick measures that for those who aren't familiar with them, there's just a a rating of a scale of one to five, sometimes one to three, depending on the question that the client can go through and just circle their answers to. So it's a pretty fast tool to use. And then we ended up trying the COPM as well and actually ended up finding out that our patient population was really pretty able to articulate what they wanted as their goals for treatment. And we were finding that in doing that, we were finding things from the COPM that we didn't even realize about our patients. Like sometimes we would learn a kid had a job that we didn't know that they had and and had limitations from their hand injury with respect to that job or That might be where, you know, you think you screen them to identify what activities they do, but somehow it seemed like when we utilize the format of the COPM, we would learn, oh, well, in addition to playing sport, they also play an instrument, you know. So over time, we just kind of ended up adopting, utilizing both the COPM and the pediatric outcomes data collection instrument. It was nice to have something that could be quick and easy at the point of care and have being the pod C, but also something that was more patient specific. I think we found that those don't completely meet our needs. There's some limitations to those as well. But what I really found through that process, and I think it's really what drove me to start to be compelled to do research around patient reported outcomes, is that It was the first time in that exercise, in that journey of figuring out which prompts we wanted to use, that I actually started to pay attention to the scores and the data, not just the scores, but the data at the point of care, and realized that these tools were just as valuable, if not more, than the range of motion 
to tell me as a clinician how that client that I was working with was actually performing and what they're desiring as their outcomes from the treatment that I'm providing them. And I think that really over, it was a journey. It was not something that came overnight, but I think it's that revelation of realizing that I learn that client better if I truly use these at the point of care. And we actually, at this point in our practice, routinely, we even, we actually have a, an algorithm that we use with patient reported outcomes measures to manage just non-specific risk pain. We see a lot of young people come in that don't have a specific pathology for this kind of vague wrist pain. Their imaging comes back looking like it's really fairly nonspecific. And it's right at that time when a lot of times there's just those growth spurts and that ligament laxity. And so at the initiation of treatment, we not only take strength measurements and we also utilize those two outcome, patient reported outcomes measures, and then can kind of chart over time the relationship between pain, function, and strength and work with the referring provider to help identify as strength is going up, is that client actually having decreased pain and improved function? Or if their strength is going up and we're not really seeing changes in those areas, then maybe that helps to indicate that not really getting at the outcomes needed necessarily and it warrants more imaging or return to the referring provider. And so I think it's not just with that patient population anymore. We have a very specific algorithm with that patient population, but there's many times anymore where as a clinician, I'm really looking at what I'm learning from those tools to inform the plan from not only the goals that I'm setting up from the start of treatment, I also find it a nice tool to utilize with the client to help them kind of appreciate their progress over time. In some research I've done, it's been interesting to learn that there's different perceptions that therapists have with utilizing patient reported outcomes measures. And, and one of those perceptions is that child can't necessarily reliably report on how they're performing or won't necessarily reliably report on how they're performing. And yet at the same time, there were therapists who utilized outcomes measures, patient reported outcomes measures at the point of care who said, I can really utilize these with patients and show them that you know, their scores change and that they're improving. And I find that that helps motivate them. And I find that that helps them see that, you know, the hard work that they're doing with their exercises is paying off. Or sometimes like, hey, look, this, you know, like you're not doing anything and here's what the numbers look like and the things you said you want to get better with. And this is what it's going to take. And I think that that's incredibly powerful. And in fact, to the point that, that perception of families or children or patients feeling as though they're bothered by completing them. I think we do have to be really careful about that, the burden on the patient. We obviously don't want to take up 15 minutes of their time with us filling out paperwork. But if we can have a tool that's succinct enough to give us data that not only we find is valuable in understanding them and delivering care that meets their needs, but they see as valuable in that regard and they see it as valuable in all of us, including 
themselves seeing their progress, then I think it's different. You know, I think that changes it to now it's not just another thing that I have to do. And, and I'll be the first to admit when I first started practicing in hand therapy, the dash was just another thing that I had to do. And ultimately, I think as a researcher, one of the things that I'm trying to learn and understand better is where are the barriers to utilization and where are the opportunities and what's the value? And that's one of the cool things that we've learned is that it does seem like there's perceived value of patient reported outcomes measures when they are clinically useful. The challenge is getting the tools to be clinically useful to us. And I think that challenge is not only in the tools themselves sometimes, but also just in what we have to deal with as clinicians, you know, finding the right one. What one is the right one for my patient population? That takes a lot of time and energy that I may not have. Getting the data calculated, like all of that, those are all things that we have to figure out. And when I say we, I mean, as a profession, really, you know, what can we do to make this work better? A goniometer is pretty easy to carry in my pocket and pull out at any moment, you know, and use. So how can I almost bring that patient reported outcome measure and make it almost as simple as the goniometer so that we can truly reap its value? I have a question. So, you know, there's a couple different outcome measures that I incorporated into my practice as well. But like you said, a lot of them are long. And even if they take, you know, eight minutes to fill out, that's long for a patient. One measure that I use is the patient-specific functional scale. What are your thoughts on on that one? It's very similar to the Canadian Occupational Performance Measure in terms of its design. Mm-hmm. Okay. I was just curious because I think that one is pretty simple. You know, three things the patient has to identify as functionally where they want to make gains. And I found that one to be a little bit more well-received than the DASH. Or I know where I work, we use a, we pay for a system where they have to go on the computer and fill out this long survey, which nobody wants to do, you know? So I agree, you know, finding one that's going to work for us as well as the patient. And, you know, that it's going to kind of flow easy, but we can still get the data that we need from that. I think that's yep, valid. Point. Absolutely. And I think you bring up a couple of good points in that there are different types, you know, like both the COPM, the Canadian Occupational Performance Measure, and the patient-specific functional scale are patient-reported outcomes measures where the clinician works with the client to derive goals that are client specific. So they're unique to each client or patient. And then the measurement through the course of care is against those specific goals, you know, and I have found that there has been some expressed desire to potentially maybe, maybe the best thing is to have a couple of different measures. And one is of that, that type. And then is there room for something that's like kind of a checklist or an item bank of questions. And if we do something like that, to your point, how can we really make that the questions that are most meaningful to the patient populations that we're working with? So in learning more about the science of developing patient reported outcomes measures, that science has grown up a lot in the last decade or so. And 
you know, 10 years ago, there wasn't really a specific protocol for developing patient reported outcomes measures. And now there's established standards. And one of the aspects of those standards is that in the very beginning of developing a patient reported outcomes measure is that you're working with the key stakeholders. So that would be the clinicians as well as the patient population that it's designed to be utilized for. And so a lot of the tools that are out there right now have been out there longer than that approach. And when you look at how they were developed, you see a lot of, well, we pulled together all patient reported outcomes measures and we took the questions and then we decided which ones were the one, you know, and it's just kind of like, so we kind of keep recycling the same kind of questions, but those are questions that were all clinician derived. So to your point, making something that works better for the patient and can be efficient for the patient probably works better for us as clinicians as well too. So maybe we need to be going more directly starting at that point and learning from them what it is that, you know, are there variables that are most fairly consistent across our patients that are meaningful to them? And if there are, then maybe we can kind of change the way we're going about our questions and streamline those to work better. You know, because I, I like I'm not great about questionnaires either. I'm the first person that's like, really, seriously, I got to answer all of these? Like, where's the fast, <laughs> where's the skip the section, you know? <laughs> However, if this can be efficient and I understand that there's something of value in it for me, then I start to shift my perspective. And obviously that's my bias and that's my personal, but we saw some of those same types of themes coming up as we were looking at therapist experiences with using outcomes measures and patient reported outcomes measures as being ideas that were being expressed. Mm -hmm. I think it's so important to really explain to the patient, you know, the purpose of the questionnaire. It's really not, not just to make them have another piece of paperwork to fill out, but there is real value to it. And that we want to make sure that we're showing progress from time of admission to time of discharge and showing that what we do has a purpose, you know, both on their end and our end. So I think that's something good. Yeah. I completely agree with you. And one of the things that I'm really curious about with respect to practice is how frequently is that even being done? You know, because I think that just in and of itself can, you know, I'm sure you have the experience of having clinical fieldwork students and, or whatever you call them in your discipline. And it's neat to see now because, you know, just my last student, I just had a student finish up with us and it's cool to see them say when they go through using the outcomes measures, like I'm using this, I'm asking you these questions so that we can make sure that we're delivering care that meets your needs and we're measuring your progress towards these in addition to your range of motion movements. I'm like that right there, that's pretty cool because, you know, here you are at the beginning of your practice and this is something that's starting to become natural for you to communicate and and embed in your practice. And you see people respond to that because I think to your point, sometimes people are kind of like, well, why are you asking me these questions? Like, you know, but then if you just engage in that short little conversation, 
it seems to kind of like be like, oh, okay, you want to learn about me. You want to, mm-hmm. you know, cause I think also in medicine, people are still somewhat used to just being told what to do, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And like their um, opinion doesn't have value. Yeah. Like incorporating yeah. them into the care where with physicians, it's, this is what I'm saying now do this where with us, it's a, it is a little bit different because we need their input, you know, to make those functional gains and functional, you know, improvements. I agree. Right. Right. Yeah. They see, I, I find that they do open up that, that communication and it gives you, gives you a guide to discussing like, what is your hope of at the end of, of your therapy plan of care, what you want to achieve out of this, not just, I want to see these numbers improve. I want to see my strength improve, but what does that mean to you? And it allows even, even going through the quick dash. I mean, sometimes I know some of those questions aren't super applicable, but even just talking through like, okay, well, what does that mean to you? And why did you rate it this way? Or what, what about that is still difficult to you? Not just, well, I don't have 90 degrees of flexion, but it gets the conversation going. But I think you make a great point in that we as therapists have to actually look at that data. And I know I'm guilty of sometimes just, okay, here, fill this out, complete this because I have to, or, you know, an Mm -hmm. insurance company is requiring me to do this, but we have to make it meaningful to us as well as therapists. And I think there's times as you become more comfortable with using them and it becomes more embedded in your practice, there's times where you can find their value is even more than you ever dreamed of. You know, for instance, you know, we're talking about just measures right there, you know, of range of motion. And we've all had that experience, right? Where a kid has an elbow fracture or whatever it is, and they are happy. Like they are like, I'm playing baseball again. Life is good. I don't have pain. And yet they're like still 10 degrees off from (laughs) what they were on the other side, you know, or what they were before the injury. And sometimes you have that situation where the family is just really hung up on that number. Sometimes even the kid is, but I've had the experience of being able to take all of that data when, you know, we're kind of looking at all of that and and having that really honest conversation around what I hear you, I hear this concern about this 10 degrees. And at the same time, this is what I'm hearing from this patient. And, you know, when we look at your COPM or your patient specific functional scale goals, you're at the ceiling. You're doing great. You don't have it. You can't tell me anything new. Like, is there something new? There's nothing new. And I've had times where that's actually been an opportunity to shift the mindset. Of, okay. Well, actually that puts that last 10 degrees into a perspective of not feeling so desperate about it right now, or even with your provide. I mean, we've, we've had that experience too, where, you know, they're going back to the doctor and they're like, I am happy with how I'm doing, you know, and you see those, those scoring pretty good overall in terms, but there's, you know, that one number that's off a little bit. It does really help put into perspective 
is another month of therapy really what this client wants or needs? Is that really going to get them? We also, I think, working in a pediatric institution, we see a handful of kids that are coming to us for elective surgeries. Oftentimes, a child with a congenital condition, always, and the surgeons that I work with are very proactive with wanting to make sure that we have a good understanding of what the patient and family is wanting out of some type of elective reconstructive type surgery, and that that's aligning with what the surgery can actually potentially do for that child. So we have pretty standard practice of, in a situation like that, we will utilize the patient-reported outcomes measures as well as other measures. Of course, we're looking at range of motion and strength, but to help make that assessment. And I think that's been a really cool thing to see through my practice too, is because 10 years ago, that wasn't being done. They were just being done at the end of their care. Like, Ooh, look how we did. Look what we did for Johnny. Mm -hmm. But now it's at the beginning and just Monday, I had a kid who is 12 years old and cerebral palsy spasticity in his wrist flexors. And there was, you know, the question of whether or not he was a candidate for a tendon transfer. And we did an evaluation and the child himself identified five treatment goals that he really had that he wanted to improve with. And then from that, we looked at him functioning with this task and utilized that to say, he really wants to be able to hold and swing a bat with his affected, with both hands on the bat, you know, what's the contributing factor? And so in that, we were really able to look at, you know, is that surgical plan that they have laid out without looking at these pieces seeming to align with the outcomes that he's wanting? And sometimes it looks very nice and crystal clear that Yep, everything looks like it's well aligned. And then there's other times where you really kind of uncover that there is an expectation here that's not aligning with what can be achieved through surgery. And then there has to be that conversation. And it opens the door in a way that I think is fairly non-confrontational and fairly comfortable to have. Not to say that it says you can't do this surgery, but it, it at least helps to kind of set expectations, you know, and sometimes then after those conversations, there's a change in the surgical plan, there's a decision to wait longer, you know, it can vary a lot. But I think, you know, obviously, those are more complex cases. And, but even your straightforward, somebody broke their wrist, or somebody has wrist pain, you know, I say straightforward, in air quotes, they still I think can uncover things that we don't necessarily find unless we pay attention to that data and utilize them. You know, and, and to, to me, one of the things that the literature shows us that is somewhat established with the utilization of patient reported outcomes measures is that there is some evidence that they help to facilitate more patient centered care. And I think that that evidence would probably even become stronger if the tools that we had 
were really working in an efficient way. They were working both for the client and the clinician, and they were being utilized, like you were saying, stuff in terms of that discussion and really at that point of care. I think that's when you get the patient-centeredness. So one of the things that I found is that when you look at the literature, tons of literature utilizes patient-reported outcomes measures, right? And yet when you look at a lot of those studies, what you see is that they've just said, well, we wanted to see how it went when, what the outcomes were for kids who underwent this particular procedure. And we did a retrospective study. We called those people back and we administered XYZ patient reported outcome measure. And this was anywhere between six months and seven years from when they had that initial, well, what is that really telling us? You know, like in the big scheme of things, is that really what patient reported outcome measures were derived for? Like, is that really what it was to seven years later when this person has gone on with their life? Look at how they're doing then. Or can it be more impactful if we're using it today and now in our delivery of care? So I know, Ginny, that you mentioned kind of in your journey with patient-reported outcome measures that you looked at what you were using, what you would like to glean, and y'all went from COPM to not using it to going back to using it. How would you... I guess, guide someone in practice who is using the same thing every single time with every single client and would might be interested in looking at something different or something that's not just required by a certain payer or by their employer. Like, how would you suggest someone go about implementing that into their practice? Yeah, that's a great question. And just to clarify, we were told we had to use the COPM and we actually just didn't. So we didn't even like go from using it to not using it to using it again. We kind of went from rebuking it to finally accepting it. So I think that, you know, first of all, one of the things that we learned in our study was that, and you see this a little bit in the literature as well, is that using patient reported outcomes measures requires habits, the habit, right? Mm -hmm. So we all know that habits are hard to break and hard to form. So they take repetition and they take practice. And even within our journey of finding one that seemed to be the right one at the time, which at this point, we're not satisfied with the one that we're using pod C. But even in that journey, we had to do a lot of strategies to kind of get into those habits. So we did things like put post-it notes on our computer that would say like, use COPM. And we tried different ones when it came to some of the item bank ones. And even with that, we had to find that we had to have copies in hand, you know? So I think some of it is saying, first of all, I have this commitment. This is something that I want to try. I think another thing that was helpful for us was that we did it as a team. So it wasn't just one person. We were actively working together to kind of meet regularly and discuss our successes and our failures and then learn from one another like, oh, that's a great idea to keep those copies on hand in that place or 
you know, oh, I, yeah, I had that same experience with that one too. And that just doesn't seem like the right tool for us to use, you know? So I, I would say if you have others, a team that you can work with, I think that's helpful. I think that evaluating what is it that I feel like I want to achieve with this? What's my goal that I'm trying to achieve by doing this might also help inform you as to what you feel like is that gap that you're trying to fill or that next step in your practice you're trying to add. So, you know, to Steph's point, if you're trying to, I've definitely found that people express that problems with item banks and help them learn their clients better. But it does seem like the ones that therapists feel they get the best knowledge of their clients with are things like the patient-specific functional scale or the Canadian Occupational Performance Measure, which you don't have to just be an OT to use. By the way, at our facility, the PTs and the OTs all use it, even for like kids that they're seeing for gait and all kinds of things. So. I think that would be my advice is what is it that you're trying to achieve? What seems to work with that? Talk to people, talk to other people, other clinicians. Like it never hurts to get others experiences with, if that gives you a starting point, if there's people that you can work with in that journey, I think that helps. I think granting yourself grace, it's not going to be perfect. I mean, even today in my practice, I feel like there's opportunity for us to do better than what we still do. But I've seen over the past 18 years, we went from not using them at all to having some of our treatment algorithms being, you know, them embedded in that. And so it definitely can happen, you know. So I guess that would be my my key things. And don't be scared to try and don't feel like if you've tried once and one it didn't go well the first time. It doesn't necessarily mean that it wasn't the right thing. Sometimes it takes a few times to really get into that groove. But I find it encouraging that, you know, I have at least one fieldwork student a year, if not more. And I find it encouraging that I can't think of one of them in the last five to seven years that didn't, by the end of the time that they were with me, utilize patient reported outcomes measures in their practice with the kids we were serving routinely, both at the start of treatment, as well as it's pretty consistent for us to use them during the course of care to reassess and to guide like, oh, yep, we're, look at this, we're, we're doing better than we even thought we were, or, oh, we're really not even though strength looks good, even though look at this pain score, it's not, you know, and having that conversation around those pieces. So I think, you know, it's overwhelming to start your practice as a therapist, especially if like this, I can't even imagine, right? You know, I, I, I started back in the days when we wrote notes, you know, um, now they have to learn a new EMR every place that they go for their different, you know, I can't imagine. But if they're, Overcoming those barriers of the overwhelmingness, if that's a word, of entering our profession and having some success and some comfort, then I'd say hopefully those of us who've been in practice longer, whether it's been two years longer or 20 years longer, 
can take that as sign that, you know, we can all still embrace and utilize them in our practice in a way that's beneficial and meaningful if that's something we desire. And, you know, I don't think that people are opposed to things that, first of all, I think most any therapist would tell you that they're a lifelong learner, right? You know, I think that's a very common theme for our profession. So that I think is one thing, if you're a lifelong learner, then you're more apt to develop new habits. But also I think that we're all nurturing, you know, there's a reason why we chose to be therapists and maybe nurturing is not the right word, but we have a connection with our patients. And I think when we find tools that are effective in accentuating that therapeutic use of self and that therapeutic understanding of the client, then those seem to kind of fit well within our practice. And while they might be hard to initially adapt our practice around, I think when you've found ones that are the right one or close to the right one, that you want more of it. Those are some great suggestions. I really find the, or I guess I can relate to making it a habit from the start and over and over and over again, like just making it part of your, your day to day. I think that's really, really good advice. One thing when I was looking at some of the literature, one of the pieces of advice was that we incorporate education on patient reported outcome measures in our just continuing education. I mean, and and I know I've gone to several courses and they say, oh yeah. And we did the quick dash or we did the dash or we did, and just kind of move on from that. And put more weight into, oh, well, these were their range of motion measurements before, and this is what they were after. Look at, look at how good we did in their plane of care. And they just brush over that proms. And I think that that's something that we as therapists or, you know, whoever's putting together continuing ed, or when we're presenting different cases or whatever, putting more weight into that. And even just educating on, what therapists are using, what's out there, what's great for some of these clients. And I think that might even encourage more therapists to use, get outside their comfort zone and use something a little different. I think those are excellent points. One of our findings was that therapists would say that they felt just overwhelmed by kind of what is it out there? What are my options? How can I figure all of that out? How do these work? And you know, I can definitely appreciate that. You know, there's only so much that we can stay up on. There's a lot of things to keep. So if they're more routine, I feel like what I hear you saying is if the utilization of patient reported outcomes measures is more routinely embraced across our practice, not only just as we deliver care, but then as we talk about our outcomes and delivering care, And we really show, you know, not just that the average range of motion gain was X, Y, Z, but also it took this length of time for people to return to, you know, this level of function or whatever it is. I think it does start to elevate the value and the meaning of those, you know, and I even challenge, I feel like this is a really lofty thing to say, but it's my hope that someday 
studies that bring people back seven years later and report on their outcomes as far as quality of life outcomes are kind of like no longer in existence and that we're looking at that you know people don't want to take seven years to get there they want to get there in as fast amount of time as possible and so that's what we should be looking at right you know yeah it's great if your surgery worked yeah yeah that's great that seven years later they're happy but what would really be beneficial to our patients is if this particular therapeutic intervention or if this surgery method over this surgery method gets them back to work faster or playing their instrument faster or being out of pain faster, then you bet that that changes things for patients. And I challenge us, like, what can we do in our practice as we, you know, I think that's the value of if we can incorporate them more at our point of care then we can start to get that level of data as well, you know? So I think it's a pretty lofty vision that I have, but I think it resonates with people, you know? So it just takes small steps towards getting there probably. And, you know, one of the things that we found was in the electronic medical record, one of the things that we did that helped us tremendously with, ensuring that we were administering patient reported outcomes measures within the first two visits, like either the eval or the first follow-up was to actually put them in our goals. Like, so, you know, we have a goal that the client will have a clinically significant change in their COPM score. And, you know, this kind of a, with respect to also pain and function on the outcome measure that we use. And, just by having it in there, because you know how it is. A lot of times that first visit, they just got the pen pulled, they're about ready to pass out. Like they just want to get in and out. You're not going to be doing the patient specific functional scale that day. That's just not going to happen. And we can all relate to that. And then we're all like, it never mind. Like I just know I can't do these in my This is what an eval looks like. Well, what we learned was, okay, but we increase our success with utilizing them if we just do it within the first two visits. And that changed things tremendously. And then we found out that, well, if we put it in our goals and then at the second visit they came in, it pops up. And then we're like, oh, it didn't get done. Because you know how it is too. Like it's not always, I saw them the first time, but now a colleague sees them the second time. But now they kind of have that like, oh, look, this still needs to get done. So I think- you know, little things can go a long way in terms of just kind of continually evaluating your processes towards establishing those habits. And I'm a big believer in when you have more than one person, it also helps to get different perspectives. And a lot of times that helps to develop habits way better in my life than if I'm the only one accountable for (laughs) developing the habit, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I have to say I've benefited from that. So as a PT, that was not something that was part of my curriculum. When I started practicing, it was, oh, this is what we used. Try this. And so I'm not as familiar, but have to give definite credit to my coworker who is a newer, a newer grad. She's been out a a couple years and is an OT and she has just exposure from her learning about different outcomes, measures, so I think, yes, having that, having that support side by side and seeing how she's implementing them and using with her patients has definitely had a 
made a difference with my, my practice and use of them as well. So there's always, you know, I guess having a cheerleader next to you helps partners in crime. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I think we've covered a lot and I really appreciate this discussion. And I know I'm encouraged to go and practice using some different patient reported outcomes measures and, and making them meaningful to me as a clinician, but also to my patients and how, I guess, that collaboration and that relationship with my patients to really make our time together meaningful. So I I really appreciate you discussing this with us. Yeah. Thanks. My pleasure. (laughs) Wonderful to talk with you. All right. Well, thanks again. And I guess we'll, we'll talk soon. (laughs) Sounds great. Thank you for joining us in another episode of Hands in Motion brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. You can listen on the ASHT website and or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple, Google, Amazon Music, and Spotify. Once subscribed, please rate and review the podcast to help us reach new listeners and to continue offering valuable, relevant content. You've been listening to Hands in Motion brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. To learn more about ASHT and to subscribe to the show, please visit ASHT.org. We'll see you next time on the Hands in Motion podcast.